0: a sliding van door opens. Some of the bottles were dropped. They turn around. As they came out the van, a first shot was fired. Big Chance spun, started running towards the one direction. His friend started running towards the other.
1: If we're lucky enough to pass a police test, and now they're going to take it out on the rest of the world. Those people need to be weeded out, are not hired in the first place.
2: That's Frank Kittins, who lost his son on an evening in 2017 to a King County police sting operation that ended tragically, followed by Public Security Advisor Jim Fuda, a retired King County police officer. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. On the evening of January 27, 2017, a sting operation in Des Moines, Washington, was set into motion by the King County Sheriff's Department. Two days earlier, the adopted son of a Seattle police officer was killed by a hit-and-run driver. The sting operation was set up to catch that individual responsible. It did not go well. Frank Gittin's son and the person that they suspected had nothing to do with the hit-and-run. But the end result is that Frank's son was shot eight times while he was running away. I suggest if you want to read all the details about this incident, just Google Frank Gittens, and that's G-I-T-T-E-N-S, Seattle, and read the backstories surrounding this case. Frank did receive a sizable settlement and an apology from King County. Also included in the resolution is a request by Frank that will help save lives in the future the King County Sheriff's Department promises to deliver. We'll talk about that, too. Jim Fuda, a retired King County police officer and hostage negotiator for 33 years, will be joining Frank and myself to explore ways to avoid incidents like this in the future. Back with Frank Kittens and Jim Fuda in just a moment.
1: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
2: On the evening of January 27, 2017, Frank Gittins received a phone call that every parent dreads. His son had been injured in an altercation. He was being transported to Harborview Medical Center. Frank, who was black, headed straight for the hospital. To his horror, his son Chance died that night from eight gunshot wounds. The reason? A sting operation conducted by the King County Sheriff's Department went wrong. Terribly wrong. Frank received a financial settlement and an apology from the King County Sheriff's Department. Part of the settlement also includes a pledge from the King County Sheriff's Department to install body cams to be worn by officers and dash cams to be installed in King County police vehicles. Frank will explain why this is so important to him during our discussion. Not only is Frank talking about that tragic night, but he also explores with Jim solutions on how community and the police can work better together while easing tensions and protecting citizens at the same time joining frank during our conversation is retired king county police officer and hostage negotiator for 33 years jim Fuda. currently jim is director of law enforcement services with crime stoppers of puget sound that encourages members of the community to assist law enforcement in the fight against crime you may have seen and heard jim frequently during the black lives matter demonstrations and the chop occupation on seattle's capitol hill he was the media's go-to guy for reporting the events as they unfolded. My first question to Frank and then to Jim, how did both of them find their way to Seattle?
0: I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. My, my grandparents and, uh, you know, my mother passed when I was 17 years old. I had enlisted in the Navy. Um, I continued to decide I still was going to go because I had the option not to go. And I think leaving Brooklyn and just kind of going on my own would have been the, the best thing for me at the, at the time. Being that, you know, I was the only child. I was the oldest grandson. So I, I endeavored into the Navy and I met a lot of people and got some of my diversity. Um, obviously, growing up in Brooklyn, it's very diverse, you know, from all different type of nationality. In the military, we really I never really even thought about race or, you know, me being black or people being white. We all worked together as a team and, and you know, we, we knew that there was a fire or emergency or whatever it was, just like sports. It doesn't matter who you are. If you don't like that next to you, you pull them out the ditch and you help them if
2: it needs to be. And you, Tim?
1: Well, I'm a first-generation Italian to the States. My parents uh, landed in, in New York, and they they migrated uh, because that's where the work was at the time. So settled here in Seattle, and I grew up my first few years in Rainier Valley, which was considered garlic gulch back then in the 50s. Uh, moved to West Seattle when uh, my parents were able to afford their their own house, because we were living with my, my grandmother. And uh, I got drafted, did two years in the military during the Vietnam War era. My draft number was 27 and I went in. But I was fortunate that I was able to finagle myself back to Fort Lewis, uh, where I was still underage, 20 and a half, and I was able to take the test for the police department, the sheriff's office. And uh, uh, I turned 21, got discharged, and got hired in a 10-day period. And I'm, to this day, I'm still the youngest county uh, uh, deputy that, that has been hired and did 33 years with them, went to work for the feds, was off to Pakistan, Indonesia, Bosnia, came back because my mother died when I was in Bosnia and, and she was 82. And uh, someone being the oldest in an Italian family, like a lot of other cultures is uh, you come back home and help take care of dad. Merle Carner with Crime Crimestoppers, uh, I, I knew him for 40 years and, and, uh, he was wanting to slow down a little bit with Crime Stoppers, and he asked me if I would take over as their director, uh, which here we are four or five years later.
2: Thank you, Jim. Frank. Your son was killed a couple of years ago, 2017. Kind of an undercover operation that went bad. I hate to have you go through this again, just so people get an idea of what happened here, because there was a settlement in your favor. But I, I would like to know, and I'm sure the audience would like to know, what, what occurred that evening?
0: I had just got off work with with some friends, and we were having a conversation, and my phone rang, and it was my son's mother. So I I took the call, and she said that she thinks Chance just got shot. And I just paused for a second, and as I was just, I turned towards the door, and I just started walking to my car, and just got in my car, and I drove. She didn't really know the details or whatever. She just said, just meet me at Harborview. I was the first one to arrive in Harborview. I got there, and she came right, right after, after I did. Uh, family was there, sisters, uh, some of their friends, and so forth. We didn't really know who it was. We didn't know at the time it was police. We just thought we didn't really know. Uh, but all we kept saying is we hope that he can get through this because it'll be a learning experience uh, to maybe teach him that hey, <laughs> wrong place, wrong time. We gotta make better decisions, et cetera. We didn't know, so. We're just waiting, waiting in the in the room. It was just us in the in the room, and we kept looking at the TV. And the TV had uh, Chance's name on it, some other people's names, and it said in surgery. And then we just kept staring at it while we were talking. At the same time, she was talking to the police officers that were back at still back at the scene because his friend was there still, and the whole thing came about where they were, they were setting up a, a, a operation, a sting operation because they thought that his friend had something to do with what happened in Sammamish uh, with a police officer's son that got ran over by some people at that particular point. And that's the reason why they arrived at Chance's house because they knew his friend was there and they thought he was a part of that scene that night through some detective work that they supposedly did and so forth. And not to go into detail, but that's why they were there. So they came up with this ruse within the days. And they arrived at, they said that my son's friend was selling alcohol. So they came under the presence of that. We were going to buy some alcohol, four, five, six bottles or something like that. So Chance was sleeping in the apartment. He woke up and said, I'm going to come out with you. They came out with the bottles in their hand. The van pulls up. They're in the van saying, let, let them get closer, let them get closer. There was three uh, officers in the back called the apprehension team. There was a male driver and a lady, a passenger, who was the one that was communicating with the young man to get him to buy the bottles. And so they got closer to the van. The, the sliding van door opens. Some of the bottles were dropped. They turn around. As they came out the van, a first shot was fired. Big Chance spun, started running towards the one direction. His friend started running towards the other he still had a couple bottles in his hand while he was running. I guess he was so scared he didn't actually drop him. They were shooting at him as he was going back up the top of the hill trying to get back to his apartment, and they shot at him a number of times. I think it was 12 different shots at one point, a total of six maybe hit him or seven or something like that, multiple areas in the back, the buttocks, the back of his leg, his groin, and a kill shot to the back of the head. They laid him out on the uh, top of the, the hill, you know, as he was trying to get back to his apartment to bring it back to now, you know, we're at the hospital, uh, waiting. And before that, one of his older sisters had came to the scene. She she ran into the scene and they they didn't know who they who they shot. They didn't know. Uh, they didn't know if it was a man, a boy. They just said some kid or some man. They said at the time that Chancey shot at them. That's the reason why they shot. Which came to find out that was never that never happened uh police they made the first uh shots and very aggressively they shot into the building the apartments if there was someone a bullet went over a baby's crib uh they were just real they just wow um they also told the des moines police not king county sheriff's department told the des moines police don't come anywhere near the scene we want to handle this on our own uh even though this is their area they know the you know the domain, but they didn't want to be a part of it. So just to you know, fast forward, so we're looking at this TV, and the TV finally says, recovery, right? And we're thinking to ourselves, my God, maybe this is like a good thing, maybe he's recovered, no, we're, you know, we're, we're, we might get through this. Um, and then a, a police officer show, showed up, I didn't know what his name was, and he broke out a laptop and all those different things. And he told us, he said, um, do you recognize any of these people, blah, blah, blah. Some people that were at the scene, at the uh, Samantha scene, some couple females. They showed a picture of Chance's friend, which had nothing to do with anything. Um, and then they told us that he was killed. He was shot by, by police officers. And that's when we first found out before we went upstairs that he was shot by Police and we still, you know, and at the time we didn't have all the details and all these things, but so then we went upstairs to this big, uh, so a conference room, and the surgeons came in. It was four or five of them, and they came in and they told us. They said um, that you know your, your son was shot multiple times. We probably would have been able to save him, for the exception of the the wound to to his head. Um, and from that point, it just we just kind of like just lost it, and, and uh, just kind of just you know couldn't believe that you know we we, we still didn't want to believe that we lost our son because he was still in the he was being on life support you know and they were you know and I've always heard that some people came out of that at some point in time. Um, but We just prayed, you know, family was around and we just hoped we just hoped that this would be one of those times and. You know and i was I was in that room and i and i just kept looking at him and i couldn't and i don't know i just couldn't i couldn't wrap my head around it that that my son was killed and in, in, in the fashion that he was killed and and then the next day i think it was uh eleven twenty seven um we uh talked about it me and his mother and and we decided it was that was time and uh that was nothing we could, we could do about it and that was the... Uh, you know, the the day. And then, you know, what we have left from that day is we have a handprint of his palm and
2: some play And
0: You know, I have it in my little shrine that I got over there. And, and I got the little
2: badge that, from, that, from that day when I was there. I certainly can see that the pain is never going to go away. And I'm just so sorry for your loss. I mean, I, there's nothing I can say beyond that point. The end result of this, you ended up getting a pretty... I guess, substantial settlement financially and and also an apology from King County Sheriff's Department. You have turned this around and are trying to turn it into something, I don't say positive, but something going forward in the future that other people may not end up like your son. And part of the settlement, the way I understand it, is that working with the King County Sheriff's Office in establishing body cams and also cameras in the cars. How how's that effort been going? It's been
0: going pretty pretty good. July sixteenth, we have a meeting with the sheriff and uh, her people, and myself, Chance's mother, a couple of the attorneys, and we're gonna sit down and uh, chop it up in regards to, to this and see what we can hash out. And uh, they're just keeping us abreast. And I wanted to know, you know, how close are we? Are how far apart are we? And what do we need to do to make this happen or, um, as fast as we can? And and if we do, if we are able to make it happen, it's gonna be part of the the uh, progress that we had in our settlement is that the non, non-monetary part of it is that they would be in Chance's name, these cameras. And, you know, in my mind, I mean, that would be a, 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 a really big start to what to Chance's name, living on forever, and his eyes watching over all of King County, you know, forever. Um, through these cameras. So that would be
2: very important to me. And that's something that, again, you feel is going on, progressing. They're not stonewalling. You feel that they are doing this and will do this in good faith.
0: Yeah, I think the, the, the sheriff, um, she really wants to do it. At least that's what her mouth is saying. And I, and I think when I, when I looked in her in her eyes, I think there's something she wants to do. And I think she wants to do it just for the simple fact is that it'll take a lot of pressure off of her. It will take a lot of pressure off her department for the simple fact is that there's things when you can create narratives all you want. That's the biggest problem with that. Every time something happens, there's a lot of different narratives that are being created and who did this, who did that, how they do it. And if we have these cameras, not only does it protect the police, it protects the sheriff so that she doesn't have to stand up for someone that doesn't deserve to be stood up for, Um, and it protects the actual players in the department that are that are good people that are standing between wrong and right i'm with this guy every day he's my brother he's here to protect me i'm here to protect him how do i go against him and say what he did was wrong right and that's the the balancing act that they have to but if there's a camera then he doesn't really have to say anything the camera speaks for itself
2: this protects the police as much or more than the general public and then sometimes we hear the police don't want it and frankly I was surprised that the King County police did not have this Seattle has had body cams and ca- cameras in the cars and then King County had not Now, what was the resistance Jim of not doing this and what do you think about what Frank just said
1: well I, I just have to start with uh, Frank that's an unbelievable story and I'm so sorry when I listen to what happened over frickin' booze you know, at, at that particular point, horrible. Um, but when it comes back to with the sheriff's office, I've I, I've heard that the body cams was just because of money that, that why well, they don't have them already. It, it became first is that uh, the cop says, yeah, well, we want uh, we we will do the body cams. It'll it'll it will uh, protect us. Uh, but we also heard at that same time when when Seattle was first starting to get it, is the ACLU didn't like it because it proved. Uh, oftentimes, because it did protect the officer at that point, be that the officer didn't do anything, anything uh, uh, wrong, and it went against the verbiage of what uh, uh, the ACLU was saying. But it's time now that that has to stop, and it keeps everybody on the up and up. And we need to have those body cams. I totally agree with, with what Frank is saying. I don't, I don't think we're all that far apart when you, if you want to say, I come from this side, Frank comes from this side. That's not true. We're all human beings that wants and needs like everybody else and wants to get ahead in life. And Frank's son did not deserve uh, to be killed. And I think body cams would would be a huge asset, uh, especially with what's going on in today's times.
2: Frank, are you getting a sense that people are finally understanding what's going on? Or are you thinking there is getting a real understanding in the community as to what it is being an African-American in this society?
0: Well, um, I think that there's, what it has done is it's awakened some people that were asleep, you know what I mean? I mean, sometimes, you know, we just, we go through life, man, and we just, we work, we come home, we play with the kids, we kiss our wives, our girlfriend, whatever it is that we're doing, and we kind of lose touch of, what's really going on in the real world. And all we think about is what's going on in our world. And if it doesn't happen in our backyard, it's probably not important. And I'm a pretty caring person and I care about people that are in my circle. But sometimes I really never got out of my circle. And, and that's, I think, something that I, the mistake that I made for me, that there were so many things going on out there prior to my son's death that I could have probably reached out to and, and made it more... Uh, important to me, and I didn't, and you know, and I, I beat myself up about it all the time, and so now I feel, you know, now that I'm in the storm and I'm part of this fraternity, I feel like I need to do something about it, and it's not too late to make up for the for the mistakes and not and just being blind to certain things, not not blind, but not really being able to just say. I'm going to take responsibility for, for this and, and, and really get out there and, and do something. Um, and just in our world in general, man, I know there's a lot more good people than bad people out there, but sometimes the good people, um, it's like you can get somebody to say something bad about you, but to get them to say something good about you. it is a, it's a lot harder. So we're just, you know, I, I think it's, it's getting somewhere. I just think during this chop thing and all the things that were going on, we lose some, lost sight of the fact that what, what really needs to to get done, and I just want us to get back on track. And uh, the main thing is is being accountable, being transparent. Jim said, "Hey, the, it was funding that was part of the problem. Funding is part of the problem, but they have the money; they just allocated it in the wrong places. and And it just and it protects all of us. It protects Jim, it protects me, it protects the officers, and even officers they need protection from their own selves." And because sometimes there's things that you would do when a camera's not on that you wouldn't do that you have control of, and it protects the department, and it protects you from not doing anything stupid. Exactly. And like
1: what, in what Frank, to, to take that about uh, with the camera, he's absolutely right. What I can remember, we're all human, and I can remember being a, at a call where I've lost my temper, and it was to my partners before I before I did something stupid would grab, you know, they pull, you say, wait a minute, I'll, I'll let me, let us take care of it, because they hadn't, and vice versa. So, it, is that a brotherhood, or is that common sense? Does that protect everybody? But the point with the camera would almost make that a moot point. You, you don't lose your, you lose your temper. If not, your, your, um, uh, your camera's going to tell you that, you know, you screwed up.
2: Frank said something uh, about some blind spots that we all have, and we all live in our tribes, and I think that was really well said in terms of we come home to our own homes at night, and then we have our own little world, and maybe sometimes we need to step out. What is it that the police need to do in your mind, Jim, looking at where maybe the police need to get rid of some blind spots?
1: Here's what I've seen change from when I came on in the 70s, is that it was almost an us and them attitude, and I'm not talking any particular race, whatever. I'm just talking about citizens, and then and then uh, the police. And I, I have to tell you, hiring on as young as I did, and seeing some of the things that I saw in my career, that you have to separate. I mean, your your mental health is something that. You can't believe people, what they do to each other. And getting that so young at age 21, coming on and seeing that stuff was, was um, I had to separate somehow. And, and cops sometimes do that with humor, uh, whatever it might, it might be with, e- with each other. And I'm telling you, what, what changed a lot of that was technology. You're in a car. You're a radio car. You don't get out. You stay amongst your own, and you don't respond to anything, and unless uh, uh, the radio sends you somewhere. And and I remember when community-oriented policing became the big topic, is that the um, FBI went to Australia because Australia was the leader in this. What they did. Was pulled out a 1940s NYPD handbook of know your people in your district. Get out and shake businessmen's hands, talk to the parents, talk to the schools, talk to the teachers, and that all changed with the radio in the in the car. And now we seem to be more. We have to get back into into the community, not just units, but everybody. Uh, every one of these cops got to get in and and know. Uh, uh, what's happening in their districts and, and and people need to work a certain neighborhood where they were where the grandmother will come up and say my son is screwing up you need to go my grandson you need to you need to go talk to him and and uh and we have a discussion and, and we become a more of well, that computer and that's what builds the trust again and i think there was more of that then and then it it, it went away for a generation
2: so you would think that coming back to like, we live in West Seattle, that like walking around Admiral, the police beat, walking into the restaurants and how you doing, Mrs. Marble and exactly. how are things going? That sort of way that we used to see a, a long time ago.
1: Yeah, I, I, had, a, I had a sergeant, an old time sergeant when I was a rookie that said, you, you haven't done your job unless, unless you've shaken five businessmen's hands a, a shift at least they need to know you you need to know them i learned that as a, a more as a hostage negotiator where where you represent yourself as a real flesh and blood three dimensional human being someone who has wants and needs like everybody else and you and 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 you share of yourself and i think that's a lot hard for type a personalities and some of these these guys that i say that were lucky enough they were nerds their whole life were lucky enough to pass a police test, and now they're going to take it out on the rest of the world. Those people need to be weeded out, are not hired in the first place.
2: My thanks to Frank Kittens and Jim Fuda. I'm going to continue my conversation with Frank and Jim on next week's Voices of Experience show that will air Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. and repeated Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Next week, I will broadcast part two of my conversation with Frank and Jim. We'll talk about a return to community policing. What it's like to be black and living in the Seattle area? Is it getting better? We often hear from law enforcement that after incidents like the one we talked about today, there's just few and far between that these situations are caused by a few bad apples. I think I can speak for Frank. And certainly Jim, though we all agree that incidents like this is not representative of the entire police force. But now I'm speaking for myself. Why then can't the police force get rid of the few bad apples? The Minneapolis police officer who smothered George Floyd to death received 17 citations during his career ranging from using excessive force to escalating confrontations. But he was never disciplined and received only two letters of reprimand during his entire 18-year career. My question, why can't police police themselves? If you would like to listen to any previous Voices of Experience show, all you need to do is Google KKNW, then click on to Podcasts. A page will appear with all of the shows airing on KKNW. Just go to the very bottom of the page, and then click on to Voices of Experience, and you are there. A reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and repeated Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Quote of the Week My dear friends, your vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent tool we have to create a more perfect union. That is the now late civil rights activist and congressman, John Lewis. Have a great rest of the week.